Amen. All right. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Vertical Church. Uh, it is a pleasure to see you this morning. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here, uh, and it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. I am so stoked about this passage, guys. I have been wrestling through this this week and uh, really coming to a point of just pure joy in seeing the beauty of this passage before us this morning. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and start turning with me to the book of Esther chapter 4 as we continue on in our journey through this series that we're calling Fractured People, Flawless God. All right, so Esther chapter 4 Fractured people, flawless God. Now, before we dive into our text this morning, uh, this, uh, this passage that we're in, uh, it has been uh, a while. It's been a week since we've been in this passage. And so let me take some time and refresh us through uh, where we're coming to, how we're coming to this passage this morning. Our four main characters of the story, we had five when we started and we're down to four. Uh, our four main characters are Apathetic Ahasuerus, we're giving them some nicknames. Uh, we've got Measured Mordecai, Heinous Haman, and Elegant Esther. Our context is just over 450 years before Christ. We're in the land of Persia or modern day Iran. One of our many crimes of the story, as I just mentioned, is that the king banished his former queen. Right? If you remember from the first week, Queen Vashti has been banished for not appearing before the king and his friends in their drunken state. And then on the heels of this drunken decision between chapters 1 and chapters 2, we learn from history that our king leads the largest army ever assembled, a five million man army against the Greeks, a far inferior-sized army, but he loses in the battles of Salamis and Thermopylae. So this military defeat, paired with the king's empty bed back in Susa, now kicks off a nationwide search for the most beautiful women of the empire to come be the new queen of Persia. Back in chapter 2, elegant Esther beats out all the other contestants, and she's elevated to the status queen. And yet, if you remember from chapter 2, that wasn't the only thing happening, right? In the background we see God continuing to uh, pursue and to display his flawless plan of redemption in a way that we cannot contribute to mere coincidence or chance. In fact, that is one of our major themes that we've seen playing in the first three verses, or the first three chapters, that we cannot contribute this story to mere chance or coincidence, but only to God's provision or providential plan of redemption. And so not finding a satisfactory or sufficient answer in the word coincidence, we dusted off the old theological term of providence in week two. And we worked through a growing understanding of what it means to see uh, the concurrent acts of God's sovereignty and man's free will playing out precisely as they do to achieve God's redemptive story. And now if chapter two of Esther was the story of what it looks like when someone's residing in God's plan at the intersection of his providence and our preparation, chapter three was the opposite, wasn't it? We looked back, as we recall in chapter 3, that it spiraled out of control. We traced this feud that was happening between this guy named Haman and Mordecai, 
all the way back and back and further back until we found ourselves realizing that this extinction level event that the Hebrew people are facing now in chapter four wasn't just a result of one man's actions not to kneel to another man's actions, but it was the result of an entire people failing to kneel to the God of creation. And that's our second theme that we've seen at play, that God's people are consistently neglecting God's promises and seeking to make their own provision rather than resting in his providence. And in what may be, I think, the most mind-boggling and reassuring truths, and we saw this last week and we see this this week, is that though we have the ability and the responsibility to make moves and to make mistakes, our movement, our mistakes will never derail God's mission. And our major theme number three that we've seen, in short, God's providence does not infringe on our liberty, but it doesn't relieve us of our responsibility. And yet, as we saw last week, we'll see this week, God's providence will always provide a means of salvation. And it's with that hope that we now enter this portion of text this morning in Esther chapter 4. So hopefully that now catches us up on the first three chapters of Esther, the last verse of chapter three. Uh, we see this decree of death being sent out all over the Persian Empire that 10 and a half months from now, it will be open season on the Jewish people. And with that decree, Haman and Ahasuerus sit down on the patio and have a few drinks as the entire city of Susa and the whole empire is now thrown into confusion. So allow me to draw your attention to Esther chapter four, verses one through three, as we see Mordecai and the people uh, despair in response to this decree of death. So Esther chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all, actually, hold on a second. Are you there? Say there. There. I kind of miss Chris, don't you guys? Yeah, when you're there, say there. All right, Esther chapter 4, verses 1. You there? Say there. All right, let's go. Esther chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So as we can imagine, not only is Mordecai in complete distress, but so are all the Jews spread across each province, the 127 provinces that have been reached with this decree of death. And so first, let's place ourselves in Mordecai's shoes for just a moment. Now listen, even though we don't see any evidence of this, it's easy to imagine that Mordecai is grieving his own actions. Think about that for a second. Mordecai failed to bow to Haman. If I did something that caused the death and destruction of every person in this room, I think I would spend some time questioning whether that decision was worth it, wouldn't you? And so put yourselves in Mordecai's shoes. He may be thinking, wow, if only I had not kneeled because I know that would cross my mind. But let's not forget that these hostilities that we see, we can't explain this by just one man's feud with another man, right? Esther 4 is not just a result of Mordecai's actions in Esther 3, but a culmination 
of God's people, particularly God's leaders, if you were here two weeks ago, we saw this, consistently neglecting, this is our lesson number two that we just looked at, they're consistently neglecting God's promises and seeking to make their own provision rather than resting in his providence. And so one of the lessons that we can take away this morning is that the Hebrew people are not facing a cataclysmic event because of one man's refusal to bow to another man, but because of mankind's refusal to bow to the king of kings. That's the story that's happening before us. And this, friends, is why we need an all-sufficient, flawless savior because our fracture runs deeper than you can imagine. Throughout the past few weeks, I've been reading a church history book, and I found myself lodged in a period of history called the Dark Ages between 1000 and 1300 in the Catholic Church. Sounds fun, doesn't it? And uh, they're talking about penance and indulgences. And the more I read this book, the more I can't believe the amount of abuse and harm that has come from these teachings or teachings like these where humanity and even churches neglect God's promises and seek to make their own provision rather than resting in God's providence of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the more I studied the book of Esther, the more I realized that, guys, the big crime happening here isn't just the storyline of Haman's plot to kill all the Jewish people, although that's terrible. The biggest crime of this story is not that. The biggest crime of the story is that an entire race of people turned their backs on God's providence and his provision and sought to do things their own way. That's the crime of the story. And friends, this isn't just Israel's problem. This isn't just a problem in the past or a problem in the future. This is our problem right now because you, myself, we are all fractured people, aren't we? We have all done the exact same thing because we have all bought into this rebellion against a flawless creator. We are the fracture. You want to put a name to the problem? Moi. So, what do we do when we realize that the implications of our rebellion are death? How, how might we consider responding when we learn that our own decree of death was brought about by us? Well, let's consider uh, two of Mordecai's actions, or the two actions that I think lead to the actions of an entire nation. First, we see that Mordecai laments the situation. I realize we don't use the word lament very often in our texting lingo, uh, but this is what it looks like. The actions that Mordecai takes in verse 1 displays deep and genuine sorrow and lament, grieving at this decree of death. He's broken. Another thing that we see, and I think we can point this out, is that we see Mordecai acknowledging his unworthiness. Where, where do we see that? Well, it's interesting to note that the author includes what I think, upon first glance, seems like a very unnecessary verse in verse 2. He says he goes up to the place that he's not allowed to go in his condition. Why does the author include that? I think it's because Mordecai is acknowledging, he's acknowledging his sorrow, yes, but he's acknowledging it in a way that acknowledges his unworthiness to be there. He's unworthy. And again, remember, this isn't Mordecai's fault. Did he refuse to kneel to Haman? Yeah. 
Yet it was his ancestors' refusal to kneel to God and his plan, not Haman's plan, that ultimately led them to this situation. Now, I know this isn't a perfect scenario, and I'm not going to say that we should exactly replicate and follow Mordecai's uh, uh, image here of repentance, but let's just consider for a moment our own situation when we're confronted with the decree of death. Right? How do you respond? Do you, do you jump to your defense? Do you come up with all of these excuses and secrets and say, wait, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't me, was it? Like, we're trying to defend Mordecai a little bit here this morning, and yet Mordecai's realizing, hey, this wasn't me. This is my ancestors that caused this issue, but I'm lamenting. I'm broken. I'm unworthy. And so do we, do we look for a quick way out? Do we rally the troops to defend our position? Or do we humbly fall on our knees, heartbroken at our brokenness, acknowledging our unworthiness, pleading to the one defense, the one righteousness that has given us hope in a hopeless situation? Let's continue to read on as we learn what happens in this scene. So in the first three verses, we see the despair of Mordecai and the people now let's turn our attention to the dilemma at hand in verses 4 through 11. So let me pick up and just read for us verse 4. When Esther's young women and the eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent uh, garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So the first of the three dilemmas that we see arises when Esther figures out that she can't change Mordecai's problems with a new wardrobe. So first, Esther pulls out the old fix-it card and does some shopping for Mordecai. Uh, maybe they had an equivalent to Amazon back in those days. Who knows? Uh, she's probably thinking, hey, surely this can't be that big of a deal, right? Let's get him some new clothes. Let's get him some bling. Let's, let's get him up out of the ashes, and then we can talk about the issues, so Esther goes for the quick fix, temporary solution to solve Mordecai's problem, but the problem is, as we see in the text, this isn't enough for measured Mordecai, right? Again, for the truly brokenhearted, temporary solutions are no solution. Mordecai has a serious problem, and he needs a serious solution, and Esther hasn't found it yet. So the clock is ticking, the decree of death is coming, and no temporary measures are going to fix this problem. So let's continue following our, uh, our 480 BC instant messaging chat between Esther and Mordecai as we see this dialogue continuing to unfold, pick up in verses 5 through 9. Then Esther called for Hathach. Uh, if you're expecting, there's another wonderful option for your son. Uh, kidding. Uh, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed, please don't name your son after a eunuch, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why this was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Verse 9, And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. So 
The dialogue continues, and Mordecai seems to uh, bring Esther up to speed on the events that are happening in the kingdom, and he makes this passionate plea to Esther to intercede on behalf of her people. Now, up to this point, we're, we're really not sure whether or not Esther knows what's happening outside of the palace. Perhaps she's playing ignorant. Maybe she heard about it but didn't believe it. Or maybe she, she genuinely had no clue about this edict of death that was on the horizon for her people ten and a half months henceforth. But for whatever reason, Esther seems out of the loop to the affairs in the kingdom, and Mordecai now gives irrefutable evidence about the pending destruction to convince Esther that this is happening. And one thing that we notice is that Mordecai does not leave Esther's responsibility up to her interpretation, does he? He clearly commands Esther. He says, Esther, appear before the king. Intercede on behalf of your people. She has a responsibility. And again, I just want to point out the significance of the actions of the characters of this story. We can get in the habit of reading scripture as if everything's all, you know, already rosy, good, and fixed, and figured out, and yet we see real-life decisions happening at real-life pace here, where real-life people have to make real-life actions, and they're important. We've often said that God's providential plan lies at the intersection of his provision and man's preparation, or man's action. God placed Esther into this position, and the thing we're not left asking is if God's timing and God's plan are right, but if Esther is going to be able to enter into God's plan in God's timing. And so that's the question that we're asking ourselves. So here's our first round of DMs. It's complete. Now Esther starts writing up another message to good old measured Mordecai. Follow along verses 10 and 11. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king for these 30 days. So now Esther sends off one more message to Mordecai and reminds him of two important pieces of information. Hey, bro, um, just so you know, and you should know this because everybody knows this, if anyone goes into the king without being summoned, they're going to die. And oh, by the way, this isn't a fairy tale like Christoph and, uh, Christoph and Anna. Uh, I haven't seen the king for 30 days. Not a good picture. So Esther's dilemma, she can't fix Mordecai's problem with a new set of clothes. Now two more dilemmas show up. She can't even go before the king without risking her life, and she hasn't been with the king for 30 days. So let's look at these dilemmas, first considering her restricted access to the throne room. Um, this situation is exactly why you should never give ultimate authority or control to a bigger, older sister. You get what I'm saying with this, right? How many of you have older sisters? And how many of you have heard the phrase, if you come in my room, I'm gonna kill you, 
right? This is exactly what would happen if she were in control of the house, if she had the ultimate authority, if she was the one that was calling the shots, right? Ahasuerus' throne room is essentially your big sister's room if she were given ultimate authority over the household. You come in here, you're going to die, and that's not a threat, guys. By the way, if you're a younger brother, you translate those words into challenge accepted, right? The other dilemma that Esther explains to Mordecai is that not only can she not enter the throne room, she hasn't been with the king for 30 whole days. And this really just continues to give evidence to the crummy situation that she finds herself in. You remember we've got this other court of the women that were gathered together, the 400 women from all reaches of the Persian Empire. They're probably still uh, entering into the king, and he's probably still uh, sorting them out. And so we have three dilemmas that show themselves in verses 4 through 11. Esther can't fix the problem with a low-risk temporary solution. Esther hasn't been with the king for an entire month, and the only solution for Esther's problem or to fix this problem is to risk her life by interceding on behalf of her people. Yet even in the midst, I want you to catch this, even in the midst of such profound, clear dilemmas, did you notice the words in verse 11? It says, anyone who goes into the king without an invitation except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. And friends, I just want to say, in the darkest times, there is still hope. And this is important. Esther's about to make a decision, not based on logic, not based on research. Esther's about to make a decision based on conviction. When we're faced with similar circumstances, do we tend to focus on the easy-to-see negatives? Do we say, hey, there's this reason and this reason and this reason this is not going to work, Mordecai? Or do we say, oh, wait, but there's hope. There's hope. We can see the thread of hope running through this story. Again, God's plan is often at the crossroads of his providence and our preparation or our action. But guess what? If we aren't prepared or we aren't prepared if the moment that God calls us to action is the moment that we remind God of all the reasons that his plan won't work. That's not preparation. That's something else, but that's not preparation. And I think here's a big lesson that we can take this morning. Being prepared is often learning to look and to cling to the hope that God will. He will provide a path for those who rest in his providence. All right, so let's turn our attention now to the two decisions, one by Esther, one by Mordecai, as we come to what I believe is the really central turning point of the entire story. Everything up to this point has been leading to this, and everything after this is going to happen because of these decisions. So let's read chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, and see our decisions. I'll read for us verses 12 through 14 here. And they told Mordecai, what Esther said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish, and who knows 
whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. So sensing that Esther was wrestling with this decision, weighing her options a little bit here, Mordecai gives the turning point speech of his life. And he now appeals to Esther's character that she'd been working so hard to develop growing up in Mordecai's household under his care for such a time as this. In this appeal, Mordecai utters, I think, some of the most theologically rich words in the entire Bible, and in true form, Esther responds with one of the most faith-rich decisions in the entire Bible. In verses 12 through 13, Mordecai reminds Esther that even though, listen, Esther, even though you hold the title, even though your residence is the palace, you're still under the same decree of death as every other Jew in the Persian Empire. There's nothing that can save you, Esther. Not your position, not your address, not your protection, and certainly not your family name. Again, let's, let's internalize this situation here. How often do we rely on our own plan when the only way for our deliverance is God's plan? We can think about this from a momentary perspective, certainly, but let's think about this from an uh, eternal perspective. An edict of death, you know what I'm talking about. An edict of death has been placed on all of our heads, and all of us has fallen short of the glory of God, bought into the rebellion against him, his name, and we have each turned away. And then when we are asked how to fix it, the temptation is to say, do better, try harder, lean into our family heritage, defend our position, build secrets around us. And I'll just say, friends, your one defense, your righteousness, did we not sing this last weekend? Is not your heritage, it's not your achievements, it's not your secrets, it's not your family, it's in the blood of Christ and Christ alone. Man, I'll just say to you right now, if that's something that's bugging you and you're saying, mm, I've never really thought about that from that perspective. If you're placing your faith in anything, your own provision, anything other than Christ, it's not going to be good enough at the end of the day. And friends, we're not guaranteed. The edict of death doesn't say that it's coming 10 and a half months from now. We don't have a clue when that day comes. So please, if this is you, do not let this day pass without letting go of your own path and placing your faith in Christ for salvation. And I'll just say to you, if, you, if that's you, if you're like, wow, I'm wrestling with this, we're gonna have pastors up here at the front, just like every service. We're gonna have a prayer team over here. We have a welcome team outside. They would love to talk to you and pray with you. So now Mordecai, shares with Esther, uh, like I said, what I think is one of the most profound theological statements in the Old Testament. Let's look at this verse. Uh, what verse is this? Verse 12. If you keep silent at this time, listen to this, relief and deliverance will rise. Get underline that. For the Jews from another place, but, but you and your father's house will perish. Who knows? whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. So now the decision is set. Mordecai has concluded his plea, 
And uh, this is the last time we actually hear from Mordecai until chapter 8, because everything from here forward until that date is all in Esther's courts. But now, before we see Esther's decision, uh, I want to stretch our minds once again here and think about these last words that Mordecai speaks for four chapters in verse 14 that combine to be, I think, one of the most exceptional explanation of God's providence and man's free will that you're going to find in Scripture. So Esther's clearly given an option here. It says, if, right? If you keep silent at this time. I've said it before, I'll say it again. God's providence does not infringe on our liberty, but it doesn't relieve us from our responsibility. Esther had the liberty to walk away at any point, just like the predecessor, the royal predecessor Saul did 400 years before but she could not rid herself of her responsibility. Well, maybe you ask, well, then can God's plans be thwarted? No. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. It's going to happen. Well, will Esther then escape the responsibility of her action? No. But you and your father's household will perish. Well, now maybe you're thinking, can we truly understand and claim that we know God's plan? No. And who knows? Maybe you've been placed in the kingdom for such a time as this. I absolutely love Mordecai's rhetorical question here. Who knows? Uh, I have a... I have a nephew. Mordecai must have had kids, man. I have nieces and nephews, and one of my nephews, uh, between the ages of three and four, I think his vocabulary uh, was comprised of the words, but why? You just always say it, but why? And the older I get, the longer I'm in ministry, the more wisdom I, I have in saying the words, who knows? Not a clue, kid. <laughs> Listen, don't hear me saying that, that there's no way to find answers, because there's a lot of answers, friends. That's why we do this every week. There's a lot of answers. That's why we have studies, apologetics, faith and soul. There's lots of answers. But when we're dealing with an infinite God, there's a lot of questions left at the end of the day in our finite minds, aren't there? Who knows, Esther? Maybe you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. All right, so up to this point, we have seen a theme playing throughout our entire storyline, and the theme is this. Actually, I have this up on the screen. One of our lessons that we can take home this morning is that God's providential plan will come to pass precisely through God's provision and the activity of his people for the praise of his glorious grace. You can take that one to the bank. The big question on the table for Esther and maybe for you is will we rest in God's providential plan, or will we, like many before us and many behind us, trade God's plan for your own plan? All right, so let's read our final portion of text as we now discover how Esther answers this question. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go into the king, 
though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. So in a, in a reversal of the authoritative structure of our story up to this point, Esther's now the one giving the commands, and she institutes this three-day fast for all the Jews, which upon the conclusion, she will go before the king and intercede on behalf of her people. I say, what a woman. Now, if you think about this, Esther likely had a few moments. Like the three dots from Mordecai are still on the text thread. He's still trying to figure out how to reply, and Esther's like, I got to figure this out. This is happening right now. And so in a split second, Esther is like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Go fast. I will do that with my household as well. And I have determined that I will boldly go stand before the king on behalf of my people. You know, this this moment reminds me of another royal Jew who had uh, an equally unnatural elevation to the throne of Israel. And of course, I'm thinking of King David. Uh, When King David, the already but not yet king at this point, stepped out of the pasture tending his father's sheep and stepped onto the battlefield to check on his brothers and see how they're doing, and then watches this giant Goliath step onto the field, and he's like, hey guys, this guy is bad-mouthing God. Who's going to do anything about that? And so nobody's doing anything about it. So David's like, okay, fine, I'll go down to the stream, I'll get five stones, I'll come back out. And as 1 Samuel 17 says, he rushes onto the battlefield. Why am I bringing this up? Because both Esther and David show courage in the face of adversity and certain death, primarily because, listen to this, their character has been refined in preparation for God's plan, and it only takes a moment to faithfully step into that plan. That's why we keep saying that God's providence rests at the intersection of his provision and our preparation. Because when that decision comes on your doorstep and you have seconds to respond, it's your preparation that prepares you to make the right decision in that moment. So my question to you all is this. If your character, is it so prepared, so refined to resemble the heart of God that when we're presented with an opportunity to step into God's providential plan, even though we feel as though we're lacking all of the provision, We can't help but rush quickly into his plan. Most of life, if you haven't figured this out yet, it's a good day to figure this out, boils down to moment-by-moment decisions. And the best decisions come from years of preparation for God's providential plan. Whether it's in Mordecai's house Jesse's pasture, watching over the sheep, working nights at Chick-fil-A, trying to make school payments for a degree that you didn't even want to get. Are you preparing now for God's plan in your life? Because that plan may present itself tonight. It may have just buzzed in your pocket. It may be 10 and a half years from today, but that plan will come. And the question is, are you prepared? So we've seen the despair of Mordecai and the Hebrew people as they learn about this edict of death from the king. We've seen the dilemmas that were faced by both Mordecai and Esther as they find that no temporary solution can fix this problem and that it's going to take Esther risking her life for her people. And then finally, we find Esther's decisions 
or decision as she responds to Mordecai's theologically rich statement with an equally faith-rich action. So the decisions have been made, the turning point has come, and now we, like the rest of the Hebrew people, get to sit back and wait in anticipation for what happens next. So this is what we've learned. Now, what do we do with this chapter as we ponder his word and respond through our hearts? If you just give me a few more minutes of your time, I just want to present these three simple reminders for us to consider for what we've heard this morning. First, let us not quickly forget God's providential plan. What do we do while we remember this? Well, once again, we saw that God's providence doesn't infringe upon our liberty, but guess what? It doesn't relieve us from our responsibility either. Esther had the liberty to neglect this opportunity, but if she had, not only would she have missed out on having a front row seat to God's redemptive plan and story, she would have been dead and forgotten about. Friends, two weeks ago, I challenged you to steward well that which God has entrusted with us at Vertical Church. I was reminded this week that in the church planting world, it doesn't happen this way. It's unheard of to hear a church growing to this size before its fifth birthday. Here's the decision you have. You can say, yes, look at what we did. Or you can say, wow, look what God did. And I pray that he's still doing. Just like Esther, God made us beautiful. But just like Esther, we have some choices to make if we're to stay in the front lines of God's redemptive story. Second thing I want to remind you of is let us not forget quickly the power of one. We live in a world where it's almost impossible to imagine that one person can do anything. We tell ourselves the world's too dark, the political system, the machines are too powerful, too big. What difference can one person make? Why try? Well, let me assure you, one voice can make a lot of change. You heard last week Pastor Garrett speak of this Wycliffe translator that through her effort, one person's effort brought the gospel to an entire people group that have never heard the gospel before. I read story after story this week of history-changing moments that resulted from one voice. Guys, presidents have been elected by one vote. Kings have been executed by one vote. You speak English, not German, because of one vote. The Jewish people have their existence today to the woman named Esther, and we find our hope in the one man, the Son of God, the Creator, the Redeemer, the man Jesus Christ. Tell me that one person can't make a change. God gave you one voice and one shot and said, go, make eternal impact. I'm right here with you. Let's go. And then the third thing, and maybe this is for you, because man, we live in a world that needs hope. Let us not forget our true hope. Two weeks ago, I paralleled the, uh, the edict of death with our own pending judgment apart from Christ. Just like Mordecai Esther tells us, she 
isn't going to be able to hide her lineage when the edict comes to kill the Jews. She, she can't do it. We can't hide ourselves when eternal judgment comes. We don't survive the edict of death by merely going under the radar. We survive the edict of death by a far more eternally powerful edict of life. And just like God prevented or presented the sacrificial lamb for Abraham with Isaac on the altar, God will provide amazing salvation for Esther and the Hebrew people, even though it doesn't seem likely at this moment where we sit at the end of chapter four. But as we learned last week, God's plan of redemption wasn't his backup plan. It wasn't plan B. Because when the flawless God of the universe makes a plan, he only needs one plan. God's flawless and providential plan was to provide salvation through the flawless actions of one man, the God-man Jesus Christ, our ultimate hope for deliverance. Would you bow your heads with me? Uh, if you're here and you're thinking, man, none of these applications really work for me, and you're thinking, how can I never forget God's plan if I never understood God's plan? How can I never forget the power of one if I know all I know is the ability to mess everything up? I'm no savior, I'm a destroyer. How can I never forget our hope? I have no hope. Let me encourage you to consider maybe for the first time, uh, the perfect son of God, Jesus Christ, who interceded on our behalf. Because Jesus is the perfect plan. Jesus is the one man who made a difference. Jesus is our hope in life and death. Ephesians chapter 2 says, But we were dead in our trespasses and our sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body like the rest of mankind. And these two words could change your life. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ, that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches and kindness and love towards us in Christ. I'll just tell you, if that's you and you need that, there's nothing special about this prayer, but I feel like I should just give you something. Again, we have pastors up front, a prayer team, but if you just need to settle this right now, pray this with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I need you. The gap is too big. My sin is too heavy. I have no hope. I have no person. I need you. I place my trust in Jesus Christ who died for my sins on the cross, rose again, never to die again, to give eternal victory over death. And I place my trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins on that cross. God, I need you.
If you prayed that prayer this morning, it would be a wise thing to come talk to somebody because there is a celebration to be had that's better than any celebration you've ever had before. And so for those of us who are in this room that celebrate that change, the edict of life that has overcome the edict of death, let's stand together and let's sing of this life and let's proclaim his goodness until he returns.